Mountain Meister is supported by Big Agnes. Check out their new Mountain Glow Collection. It's a line of tents that has strings of LED lights built into the frame. No more fumbling around for the flashlight or the headlamp that would help you find the flashlight or headlamp that you're looking for. For 20% off of your purchase on anything at BigAgnes.com, use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout. And thanks. Exploration and adventure allow us to discover certain things. We discover new places. We discover what we're capable of. We discover what we love. For my guest today, Derek Abbey, he discovers something else. He's a member of the Bent Prop Project. It's a team of volunteers, trained specialists, and professionals who are dedicated to discovery. They locate and assist with identifying American POWs and soldiers that were missing in action in World War II. The effort is done through extensive research, recoveries, and exploration, all while coordinating with the appropriate national authorities. You're listening to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. We pick things up in the interview with how Derek originally heard of Bent Prop. Well, that goes back a, a little over a decade ago. Uh, I was still in the Marine Corps, and my job in the Marine Corps is I was an F-18 aviator, uh, and I was with a squadron at the time called VMFA. 121 and 121's been around for a long time to include World War II and we were actually contacted by uh, some of uh, the old cadre from the squadron that were having a reunion and uh, a colleague and I flew out to uh, Indiana to meet up with them. We had just uh, returned from a deployment overseas and uh, we wanted to interact with them and kind of find out what it was like to fly Corsairs during World War II and they had no interest in that. They were really interested in the Hornet. But it was an interesting conversation. But through that, uh, I became connected with the, the founder of the Benprop Project, uh, Dr. Pat Scannon. And uh, him and I became friends. And then uh, shortly thereafter, he invited me to be a member of the group. And I've been involved ever since. What are those conversations like when you see another generation of soldiers and they're really fascinated with what you're doing and then you're really fascinated with what they did? Um. Well, I just kind of sit back in awe and listening to what some of these guys are doing, uh, flying, you know, 70 plus years ago mm-hmm. um, and and what they were going through, what it was like. You know, a lot of them are just barely 20 years old and had no flight experience prior to the war and then just kind of found themselves in uh, America's finest technology at the time, you know, flying probably the equivalent of the space shuttle. Uh, today, or maybe I guess right. maybe I was getting a little old, but back then, uh, and you know, then they found themselves in places that they had never heard of, uh, finding an enemy that they they really didn't know a lot about. Uh, it was very different from our time, and so I'm just fascinated by their stories and and what they did and what they committed to, and and um, the fascination goes both ways. They were interested in you know the new technology of our aviation and the experiences of our aviators today was just a, a mutual interest, a fantastic bond that is shared uh, across the generations. Absolutely. Okay, so Dr. Pat Scannon tells you about the Bent, proje- Bent Prop Project. <laughs> what did he tell you? Well, I, oddly enough, I had actually heard about it. So I was familiar with what the, the work that he was doing, and the reason I had heard about it was I had done some research on the squadron, and he had already found uh, an airplane from my squadron. 
And so um, I read a little bit about it and I was interested in it, but I, I really didn't think about reaching out to him or anything. And then our paths just happened across. And Pat's an, an amazing individual. He's a medical doctor, research scientist, um, started his own pharmaceutical. He, he does a lot for our nation. And then in his spare time, for lack of a better explanation, he started up uh, the Ben Prop Project. And I was just fascinated by it and fascinated by him. And he was he's just kind of one of those people that you want to be close to. Um, and I was immediately bought into what they were doing based on kind of my own personal values and the organizations that I've been committed to and being a part of the military and kind of feeling an obligation uh, to some of the work that they do and searching for those that, have, that are still missing. And yeah, we hit it off and, and then uh, he invited me to be a member and I've been completely committed to the group since then. So let's talk about like exactly what goes on here. Uh, yeah. for, first off, just quickly, everybody that you're finding is already deceased. How many people, when you first explain to them this, they think that you're looking for uh, POWs and MIAs that are still living? That, that yeah, that happens on a regular basis. Uh -huh. You know, they kind of they kind of think, well, these people have been missing for this long, right, and they're, right. they they sometimes think maybe they're wandering in the jungle or something like that. No, that's not the case. So we're we're searching for those that have been missing, but yes, they have since deceased uh, or POWs that were executed and interned. So we're looking for those remains so that ultimately um, they can be repatriated and returned to their families. And so. Um, that, that kind of loss with the families is it, it is passed from generation to generation. And you, some people think, well, they've been gone for, for decades. What What's the point? Or are the families really interested in that? That hasn't been our experience. The, the families are very appreciative. And um, it, it definitely shows that somehow you're bringing a little bit of closure uh, to that story and answering questions that have been lingering for, for decades and, and allowing kind of some of the healing process to continue in the, in those families. Um, so what we do though, is, uh, we, we do research year round, uh, in support of these missions. And then we make a decision prior to going to Palau, which is where we've done our work for the last two decades on specific areas and, uh, potential sites or locations that we're going to search for. And, and those include in the, in the jungles of Palau and they include the, the water, uh, surrounding the nation of Palau. Uh, if you include World War II and all of our conflicts, we we have almost 80,000 people still missing. Wow. And, yeah, and in and around Palau, uh, there's potential to find, well, we think uh, maybe 70 or 80 in and around Palau, uh, but there's been a couple hundred lost in that area. A lot of them are in deep water, and right now our technology isn't there to to locate, find, or recover uh, those that are missing. But um, in in the jungles and in the lagoons uh, surrounding that, that nation, uh, there, there's potential to find a lot of those folks. So first off, you said, <clears throat> excuse me, you said 80,000, and then you said the mm -hmm. potential in Palau is 80. So where are the other 79,900 people? Around the world. And that's just a round number uh, as far as the 80,000 goes. But they're, they're everywhere uh, in all the conflicts and stuff that we, we have fought over the years. There's people in Europe. There's people all over the Pacific. Um, and then you add up, you know, most people are very familiar with the Vietnam conflict. There's still several missing from Vietnam. And, and yes, they're, they're everywhere. Now, we have focused our, our efforts in and around Palau 
um, for a long time just because of the, um, the uniqueness of that nation. One, there was a significant amount of fighting that took place there, nine major air campaigns and an amphibious landing that the Marines did uh, there. And then in, when you look at development, the nation really hasn't developed significantly since uh, World War II in comparison to the rest of the world. So there's a lot of uninhabited islands, unexplored jungle, uh, the lagoons surrounding all these islands. Um, there's, it's a world famous scuba diving site, but it, that's only a small portion of the waters that people tend to go for the recreational diving. Uh, there's a lot of the lagoons and water areas that haven't been explored or aren't explored on a regular basis that that have hid and covered up and maintained um, these sites where people have gone missing. And so that allows us to kind of go back, locate, discover, document, and then turn that information over to the appropriate agencies to ultimately have the, the remains recovered and returned home. So you, you're, you're really searching for something. Like what? What goes on when you reach the island? How much information do you have going into it? And then are you are you bushwhacking through the jungle? Yes, in many ways we are. We, we go in with a what we think is a pretty good plan. And then the, the minute you step off the plane, <laughs> everything changes. Right. Um, so we base our plan on the available resources and stuff that we have for that mission, uh, the likelihood of success of certain um, – points of interest, um, and, and people that we're looking for. So we'll kind of have those stacked in a, in a priority order. And then sometimes we'll, we'll step off the plane and people will realize that we're back in town and they've heard what we're doing. And so we'll be approached by locals about, Oh, Hey, there's a hunter or there's a fisherman that saw something over here. Wow. Or there's an elder that you haven't talked to that was an eyewitness and, and we have an opportunity to interview. So that immediately provides new information that can point us in a different direction or uh, change our focus or, you know, weather can change everything. But yeah, from there, um, we make a priority every day. So we'll, we'll get set up and we'll do initially a lot of administrative work. So we'll, we'll meet with all the appropriate government agencies from the historical preservation office of Palau all the way up to the president of Palau, uh, explaining what we're doing, uh, that year and then getting the appropriate permits. We'll also meet with the appropriate uh, tribal leaders because there's a parallel system in Palau of a political system that we're familiar with and a tribal system that's parallel to that that is just as powerful and just as influential and you have to have just as much approval from them to work in their nation. And so we get those approvals and then once all that is uh, taken care of, the administrative portion of it, we start doing the groundwork. And we'll uh, gather all our information that we've already put together. We'll assess it and then we'll brief our first day's mission. We'll go out for that day, do whatever it is that we need to do, whether it's on the water or in the jungle. Uh, if we find something, we'll document that and then we'll come back at the end of that day, debrief everything and then plan for the next day. And that goes on for about a month. Um, and it goes between the waters uh, and the jungle. Up next... Derek will talk about the success rate of the Bent Prop Project. But first, let's thank a sponsor of Mountain Meister. It's the American Alpine Club. If you are a passionate climber and you aren't a member of the club, quite frankly, you're missing out. They have a huge library of publications and digital resources. They also give away thousands of dollars of climbing grants every single year to their members. Find out more, AmericanAlpine.org. Use the code MEISTER when you sign up. You'll get a special AAC gift. 
Well, recently we've had a lot of success. We've had a lot of success actually over the decades, but um, we've been developing new protocols and new technologies we've had exposed to, and we've collaborated with people like the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware, which uh, has expanded our technological capabilities, specifically in the water, but also on land. So with them, they'll uh, work with us using their automated underwater vehicles, and that allows them to program this Remus vehicle, underwater vehicle, that will go and basically do a sonar imagery of a lagoon floor, and it can be pretty significant. Uh, we can uh, assess that data, look for points of interest, and then dive point targets um, to assess what it, if it's something man-made or something that we're look for, looking for. And then um, if it is something that we find, you know, we, we stick with that. And then if not, then we go on to the next point. But that's allowed us, uh, you know, to completely expand our capabilities. And in the last two years, we've found three sites associated with seven uh, Americans missing in action. And those are all uh, downed aircraft sites, and the, and the MI is associated with those. So those are open cases right now, and the, the process is moving forward to ultimately try and recover uh, the individuals associated with those aircraft. So, so I guess what, like, what do you need to, to identify a person? Well, uh, it starts with the, the aircraft things make make it pretty uh, make it a lot easier if you can one identify what kind of aircraft it is. Uh, then we'll go into identifying which aircraft it is, and then once we've done that, if we can do that, we know the air crew that are associated with that aircraft. Um, then we can review the records to find out and, and verify that this is an in fact uh, an aircraft associated with people that are missing in action. Um, and then from there, you know, they go for the actual identification of the people there, that that's a involvement that takes place with the defense POW MIA accounting agency. So they'll send out a recovery team right now that will look to recover remains and they can use a number of means to identify or verify who that is from simple things like dental records to artifacts like dog tags or wedding rings or something like that if they locate those. And then ultimately the remains are transported to a lab where they'll, they'll do DNA analysis and then verify exactly who it is. But, and then it turns into the notification process. But you're not allowed to um, find – you can't consider somebody found if you just found their plane. You need to find some yeah. remains of a, of a soldier. Nope, that the the plane is just a means to finding the people and, okay. and the, plenty of times where we have found aircraft that we know are associated with uh, Americans missing in action and they've done a recovery mission and we're unable to find the remains. And that could be for uh, a number of reasons. The main, remains might have been recovered by locals mm -hmm. or the enemy or post-war and interned in a place that is, we're unsure of or the wreckage may have been moved or disturbed or who knows what, what could have happened. But that just means it's still open and we're going we're gonna to keep on looking until we find them. What percentage of, these pro uh, of your findings are on accident? Oh, wow. <laughs> say, say you're looking for something and you find something else. Well, um, I don't know what the percentage is, but it does happen. Okay. It does happen. Um, and not maybe kind of what you would think as far as, oops, we ran into something we were completely not look, uh, looking for. or But we have had um, uh, 
one specific Marine Corsair and the, and the aviator associated for, with that airplane we were looking for for about four years. And we had some pretty good data. And we were looking and looking and we knew it was in this area. And the, fun, and the funny thing that happened was um, we, I think it was the fourth or fifth year that we were looking for it. And we had access to a helicopter and a few of us are aviators in, in the group. And, and we had this elaborate plan of we were going to take this helicopter up and, and mimic what we thought was a flight plan of the aviator and trying to kind of try and put our mindset in to what we thought his, his mindset was to see if we could get a better idea of where he went, went down. And then we had a land group that was going to go search a certain area and we established a link up point where, um, we were going to meet up and then we we're going to all together go search another ground area. Well, we went up in the helicopter and looked around for this aircraft and, um, we, there was this clearing in the jungle where we knew our friends were close to, and we, we flew over in that area and we saw a couple of our guys kind of jumping up and down in the, what we call these elephant ferns. And we couldn't, we had radios, but we couldn't really hear what they were saying. So we didn't know what, what they were trying to communicate. So we went and landed in the area, um, where we were going to link up with them and, and ultimately did link up with them. And, and what they were trying to express to us was that they found an aircraft. And what happened was, um, they were walking back to the area to link up with us. And one of our guides, who's a local, local Palauan tripped over something. And he looked down on the jungle floor and there's a piece of aluminum sticking out of the, uh, ground. And they, they dug around it a little bit and it, obviously it's not jungle. Yeah. <laughs> so it's aluminum and it was aircraft. And we came back to that area and searched around, and it, it turned out that it was that Corsair that we had been looking for for, for four or five years. Wow. Now, the interesting thing about it was we had searched in that area before, but that aircraft was so broken up in pieces, and the jungle had grown up over it so much that we didn't even see it. We had walked over it probably a dozen times before oh, somebody actually tripped it. And uh, now it's well documented. It's an open case and everything, but... Things like that do happen. Uh, sometimes, you know, we're, we're lucky and we'll take that. <laughs> right. It's like in hide and seek when you're a kid and you accidentally find somebody. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. And, and we've had, uh, I know this year we were looking for uh, pieces of aircraft and we have this amazing technology and a handheld sonar which allows you to go down with limited visibility in the water and search with the sonar and you can kind of see if there's things around you even if the visibility is really low and we'll go down in teams and uh one guy is using the sonar and you get kind of focused on it almost like playing a video game and you're you're you kind of start getting tunnel vision and he started swimming to something that he saw on the sonar and and our, the other guy, our buddy, tapped on his shoulder and pointed on the ground, and there's a wing <laughs> laying on the on the floor that he didn't see because he was looking at the sonar. But his, his partner, thank goodness, was was there with him because he probably would have swam right over it if he hadn't known. And so, you know, the technology takes us to a certain limit, but you still have to keep that human element in there, um, or a little bit of luck sometimes, so that you can be successful. And we'll, we we take everything that we can. So what is your, uh, what's your emotion going into a trip? Like how, how does this feel? Does it feel like a, a vacation or like a mission? How do you approach this? Well, we don't look at it as a vacation at all. Um, and some people that we, that have contacted us, you know, that's kind of what they, uh -huh. they think 
oh, you're going over for a month and having fun and splashing around in the water and running around in the jungle. And, and it's not that. Uh, we do have fun, uh, but we take our our work and what we're doing very, very seriously. So it's approached more like a mission and we call it a mission. Mm-hmm. We call it each year, we call it a mission. And um, it's it's kind of a, a solemn approach, but it, it, we take it very seriously. Uh, we, we put a lot of effort into it. Uh, they're only a month long because I, I guess only is maybe a bad word, but at the end of that month, you're exhausted mm-hmm. and, and you need a break from that mission to come home and kind of recharge your batteries. It, it, it takes a lot of toll on you. We're not doing anything else. We don't take a day off. They're full days from getting up to breakfast to all the way to dinner and, and then planning and continue to plan after that. So, um, it's a lot of hard work, but we're all 100% committed and it's kind of become a part of who we are, uh, as individuals and definitely as a group. Um, so yeah, I guess I'd say we approach it as a mission. Yeah. What kind of person is a volunteer for the bent prop project? Well, um, we have, uh, people from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, I mentioned Pat, who's uh, a world famous scientist and, and then, but we have people that are world champion skydivers. We have aviators, archaeologists, all sorts of varied backgrounds. That um, one thing I kind of look at it from a leadership standpoint is it's amazing that all these people can come in and work together and check their egos at the door mm-hmm. um, and work towards a common interest. But the people that make up our group have a variety of backgrounds. Uh, their their lives are all over the place and they live all over the place. And we, we continue to get interest. And what we look for nowadays um, when, when somebody expresses an interest in, in being a part of the group is somebody that can enhance our capabilities. So, um, you know, you may be a scuba diver, uh, but we have plenty of scuba divers or you may be an aviator, but we have aviators or you may be a medical person. But so what is it, uh, that you can bring additional that's going to make our efforts greater or expand our um, abilities. And so sometimes that's a human element and sometimes it's a, it's a unique background. So we've had people that have been recently, we've had members that have come on board that are um, investigation specialists who've had backgrounds in investigating crime scenes. And we've had, we've had recently a new member was um He's a dentist, a dental specialist, but he's done dental forensics. Hmm. Uh, And so that's a capability that's, you know, none of us have that's specific to that. Uh, Another new member is a Navy dive, uh, medical dive officer. So he has a significant capability in um, diving and he's uh, contributed greatly to our diving protocols. But then he's also a specialist around um dive medicine so it, it kind of keeps us safer uh we're, we're very safe already but it's just an extra ability to ensure that we're doing things the right way uh and you know there's it makes no sense to hurt somebody in our group and, and search for these guys so we're always looking to do things better and and expand our capabilities and that's really what we look for in a, in a new member of course you know they have to be able to get out in the jungle and move around a little bit. They have to be able to function. Uh, they have to be physically capable and, and mentally capable. But yeah, sometimes it is a human element too that are you going to fit in with our group? And um, over a month, 
you know, uh, be able to work well with others type of thing. Well, let me know when you need a podcast host. I know the perfect guy. (laughs) Coming up, Derek's gear recommendation. But first, a gear recommendation from yours truly. It's a Mountain Meister t-shirt. If you're like me, there are a few shirts in your drawer that get a ton of attention. You wear them all the time. But then there are others that don't get touched at all. Why is that? I did some pretty thorough research into those reasons, and one of them, it's a characteristic called anti-fragility. You would think that as your shirt undergoes all the washes and the wears, it would disintegrate, it would fall apart, it would be more uncomfortable. But no, your favorite t-shirts get stronger with those small stresses. They get softer, they get better fitting. They are anti-fragile. I made sure the Mountain Meister t-shirt is anti-fragile, to see the whole list of what makes a t-shirt your favorite and to buy a Mountain Meister tee of your own, go to our website, mtnmeister.com. And thank you for your support. We get a gear recommendation from all our guests. What, what gear yeah. helps you move through the jungles and the waters? Give us something we have to have. Well, the biggest thing, the biggest thing I, I, I would think about is working in the jungles. Um, and you know, you know, when I think about that, I think of a couple things cause most of the gear is so personalized, what works for you, but it's a very humid environment. And, um, so one of the biggest things that I have to have with me is body glide to ensure that I'm not, uh, chafing anywhere. And then I always wear hats you have to wear um you have to be fully covered in in the jungle and they have things like poison tree there which you want to be protected from um so everything is covered and i always wear a hat and recently uh i started wearing uh rogue american apparel hats Mm -hmm. and i wear them in everything that i do because they keep the sweat out of your eyes or a low profile hat uh it's just perfect and it it might seem like something simple but I, I wear those things in, in everything I do, whether it's running through the jungle and, and looking for America's Missing in Action to just doing an everyday run to a hat I wear around if I just want to wear a hat. Very good. Those on Derek's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Uh, you mentioned chafing there. Uh, I, ran, I ran a marathon on Sunday, and oh. s- certain parts of my body are indeed chafed right now. So that sounds great. Um, and I also read that you are trying to run 50 marathons in 50 states throughout your life. Just a, another uh, interesting fact about you. Wh- how far through are you? Uh, I'm only about 12 states in. Uh, I have another one next month. i uh, heading to Colorado to try and do the Leadville Marathon and then Montana in September. I have a full schedule, so I can't do the Dean Carnassus thing, you know, 50, right, right. 50 days, 50 days, but uh, it's an ongoing process and it keeps me active and uh, running around. I love to run, so uh, yeah. I did the Sugarloaf Marathon in Maine. Have you hit uh, Maine oh, yet? I haven't hit Maine yet, uh-huh. uh, but I've, been, I've done a couple up in the Northeast, so I did Vermont uh-huh. uh, and I did New York City, which was... nice. Awesome. Uh, and I kind of split between uh, urban races and trail races. I, I think nowadays I like I like the trail races more as far as the smaller races, but nothing nothing compares to like New York City and yeah. being out with all those people. Yeah, Sugarloaf was pretty lonely compared to New York City. <laughs> I was trying to qualify for Boston and unfortunately didn't. Uh, yeah. it, it was raining for the for ten of the miles. 
which oh. is not good, but I still don't think I would have made it. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to uh, qualify for Boston, and although I run a lot, I don't run very fast. I just, I'm not built for running, I'm just stubborn, so I, I do it out of stubbornness. <laughs> yeah, well, that's needed. Um, oh, uh, we had a question from my roommate, his name's Max. Uh, oh. It was, how how do you decide when you have to give up on somebody? That's got to be a difficult decision. Mm. Well, we never decide that we're going to give up hmm. uh, on anybody. We, we, we are committed to this for the long haul, uh, and we're going to keep on looking. Uh, we do shift uh, priorities from time to time, uh, and usually that's a matter of what information presents itself at that time. And so uh, we, we've had cases where we've been looking for 10 years before we discover a site. And we, we have active cases right now where we've been searching for more than 10 years uh, for, for the people associated with certain aircraft. So, so we never give up. Uh, sometimes we, we shift our priorities, but we'll, we'll, um, we'll keep those cases open. And every once in a while, we'll go back and, and readdress them really from the beginning because there might have been something that we missed or new information might come to light. Uh, it's, you know, sometimes it's as simple as somebody opened a box in their house in Ohio and their uncle had pictures in there from when he was on B-24s and they did missions. Yeah. We've, had, we've gotten information like that about a specific site or we find a file that was misfiled in the National Archives and that brings new information to light. It could be, it could be as simple as one picture. That's um, amazing. And we've had, we've had a half hour of film and the last, the literally the last two frames of the film of that 30 minutes had the, the, the key to a site that, that we discovered. And in it, it's just a matter of keeping an eye and keep on looking and, and never give up. And, and that's the approach that we take to it. We're, we're not going to, we never close a case. We never give up. We're just going to keep on looking. Is the highest probability person going to be prioritized the highest you know what i'm saying there yeah yeah so we we do prioritize based on likelihood of success okay uh, and sometimes the priority is also well we have the opportunity to interview somebody from world war ii if that shows itself in a day we're going to do that right uh, not getting any younger right. uh, and it, it's unfortunate but we have to take advantage of those opportunities right away so we'll do interviews whenever we have the chance as soon as we have the chance uh, nowadays but the priority of who we're looking for that sometimes shifts based on information that shows itself and the highest likelihood of success sometimes it shifts based on the resources that we have available so if uh, our through our partnership with Scripps and the University of Delaware, if they have their automated underwater vehicles available that, and they're only there for a week or two weeks or however long they're there, well, then we're going to use that for water sites because that's a, a resource mm -hmm. that might be on next week. They have to go on to do something else or uh, they got to get back to the states to do something. So while they're there, we're definitely going to focus on those water uh, sites and information that they give us. So there's a number of things that kind of shift that priority. It doesn't stay solid. Um, this is the list and this is what we're going to uh, stick to. It, it's in flex constantly based on new information. Just a fascinating project done 30 days out of the year. Go to bentprop.org. I should say the expedition is done 30 days out of the year, but it's a year-round effort. 
bentprop.org to find out more. There's also a fantastic 60 Minutes piece by Anderson Cooper. Uh, We'll have links to all of this on our website, mtnmeister.com, on Derek's Meister profile page. One last question for you, Derek, and that is, who would you like to hear next on this show? Well, the fascination that I get about your show is is the people that are outdoors and doing things out in nature and exploring. And so some of the people that have been interesting me interesting to me lately are those that are taking others and exposing them to out, outdoor activities and stuff like that. So I think of people like Sebastian Sloan that has a, has a group called Nature Unplugged, and they're using nature to influence people and help people through their lives. And people like Nick uh, Kumalotos, who is a who's a marine as well, and he started a group called the the Raider Project, and they're taking veterans out into nature in one way uh, as a therapeutic means in, in recovery from injuries, and also transitioning back into civilian life and things like that, as as well as several other things. So I definitely like to hear about some people like that. Keep an ear out for Sebastian and Nick on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Thanks so much for joining us today, Derek. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. That was Derek Abbey, volunteer for the Bent Prop Project. In the spirit of Memorial Day, thank you to all the men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice while serving our country. Derek served as a Marine for 23 years, and what we just heard is such a unique and meaningful way to honor those World War II servicemen and women, and also their families. Again, all the pictures, links, and extra information about Derek are on his Meister profile page at mtnmeister.com. Mountain Meister is supported by Big Agnes, who has everything that you need to sleep soundly in the backcountry. They even have double-wide sleeping bags, which are built for couples. Or, if you're single, it can be the subject of a really great pickup line for this or whatever else you want. It's 20% off when you use the code MEISTER at checkout. Go to BigAgnes.com. As usual, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and you've been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.